when my wife was five months pregnant with our daughter, Lydia, I got in a car wreck. I've told some of you this story before. The irony in the car wreck is that I was leaving church on a Wednesday night. Having counseled a teenager, I stayed late after our Wednesday night services, and so I was going home later than I normally do. As I'm driving home to my five-month pregnant wife, who's pregnant with our first child, a teenager hits me going 70 miles an hour. So, let me see if I can get... So there's the front of my Civic there, my wonderful 1996 Honda Civic that I had driven from the time I was 16 until the time that a teenager hit me going 70 miles per hour. I'm still a little bit bitter because I had put 180,000 miles myself on that vehicle. The air conditioner was out on that car, and my wife had told me over and over again, you cannot drive a kid in this car. You can't drive a kid in this car. It doesn't have air conditioning. I was like, it's fine for me. Like, I roll down the windows. It's totally okay. I was dead set against getting rid of that car. But anyway, so I was driving down the road, going through an intersection when a car hits me going 70 miles an hour. It hits the front of my car. Now, this next picture, because it spun me so fast, um, my, my driver's side rear door hit the back of his car. Like, that's how fast I got hit. Like, it spun me that fast. So you'll see, like, the impact here on the side, like, that's the rear door. Okay, and so, like, the collision was, like, he's going through the intersection, and I'm going through the intersection. We hit, and I spin. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, it spins that fast, and it hits me like that. Um, That was one of those moments in life, um, like, so the airbag deploys, all that good stuff. Um, I was knocked. I was knocked from like I was going through the intersection, right? And so um, let's pretend. Does everybody know uh, DB Wood and Williams? Okay, pretend like an intersection like that. So pretend I'm crossing Williams. Okay, I'm on DB Wood. I'm crossing Williams onto Shell, going up towards the village. Uh, my car ends up facing the other way on Williams. That's where I end up. So instead of staying on the same road that I was on, I was knocked onto the other road facing completely opposite direction. So when I hit, like I just saw him in an instant right before, couldn't break anything like that, couldn't brace for impact, just saw a car, and then all of a sudden it hit. That was not fun. Um, So your face hitting an airbag does not feel good. Uh, it's, It's much better than hitting a steering wheel or a windshield or something like that, but even still, it doesn't feel very good. And so I hit, I hit the airbag, and there I am, I, like, complete disorientation. I know I'm in my car still. I recognize part of it. I'm aware somewhat of just of what happened, but it's one of those things where I couldn't see more than, like, two or three feet in front of me. Like, I had no idea, like, what was going on outside of my car. I just knew that the inside of my car was pretty jacked up. I also knew um, that my legs were kind of like crunched up. Like, I was like, oh, I know I'm not tall. Um, and so normally I have a good amount of room in front of me. But that's all gone. And so, like, it's just, it's different. And so as, as I start to come to and realize what's going on, my immediate thought is, I hope I'm okay. It's an interesting thought to have. I hope I'm okay. Because I didn't know. 
Like, I actually did not know. I was so dazed, so out of it. Like, I knew a wreck had just happened, but I didn't even know if I was okay. So sure enough, get out of the car, um, broke my pinky. That was not fun. Uh, some of the resentment that I have, though, a couple of things here. I'll get back to the story in a minute. I was training for a marathon. Um, I was logging 10-mile days, and so each week I was running 50 miles or so as I'm training for a marathon, um, and then I got sent from, like, really healthy marathon training into physical therapy, and so I wasn't able to run, wasn't able to do anything like that, missed, what's that? No, 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 no. I, I had other injuries than just my pinky. No, I didn't, I, that's, that's a great question. I did not stop marathon training for my pinky. Yeah. So, so you get a rubber band and you stretch. No. Okay. You know what? I'm working out my pinky. This is pinky physical therapy. Okay. So I, I, stop, I stop training for the, the marathon, have to get into physical therapy for my back and for my leg and my shoulder. And so it kind of hit and all that good stuff. And, and so it had the, the miserable experience of calling my wife and telling her I got in a wreck. Now, that was not fun at all. So, of course, she comes up to the scene and she breaks down. She's in tears. Uh, you know, she's so ha- like, like, you know, she's a, a young wife who's about to have a baby in a few months and, and just all in her head like my husband could have died my husband could have died and I was like no I'm okay I'm okay I'm okay it'll be okay so get home but here's here's the reality a few things happened after that wreck one of them was I did consider my life in general you have one of those experiences that's kind of scary and you take a step back and you just kind of evaluate life a little bit And so for a while there, I got to be very contemplative. I was very thoughtful about what my life was all about and who I wanted to be, what I wanted to contribute to the world around me. The other thing, and this was was a hard part, was the fear of death every time I went through an intersection. Like, I would go up to an intersection, and my body would have a physical reaction as I'm approaching it. Like, I have a green light just like I did on the night of the wreck, I have a green light, but physically, I'm getting ready to be hit. And it took, oh, probably about three or four years after the wreck for that, like, just that physical response to kind of finally go away. Now, one of the realities of following Christ, one of the realities of choosing a religion that has eternal implications is that we think about things like life and and death. You see, in the ministry of Jesus, we like to talk about what he taught, we like to talk about his miracles and all those different things, but one of the hard parts to kind of stomach, one of the hard things for us to even talk about much at all, is the reality of life and death. Now, I want you to think about this for a little bit. Our ability to follow Jesus is in part tied to our ability or our willingness to die to an old life. Here's here's one of the ironies of following Jesus. So you have Jesus who comes preaching about life. 
He tells all these people, follow me and you will have life, and you'll have a life abundantly. Follow me and you'll have eternal life. Follow me and you'll have life. Follow me and you'll have life. And so the first 12 disciples follow Jesus, and all of them except one are killed for their faith. Follow me and you will have life, and you're going to die young. That would make a whole lot of sense. Follow me and you'll have life. And the guy who says that has a ministry that lasts a total of three years before he's killed. And so one of the realities we have to wrestle with when it comes to following Jesus is what does it mean to actually follow Jesus and have life? And in the context of this series, the good life, is the good life meaning die young? We'll see. So we're about to open up John chapter 8. And before we do, I just want you to know we're going to read an account about a woman who, uh, whose life Jesus saved. Now, this wasn't a miracle where she had been sick and he heals her. He didn't feed her so she wouldn't starve. He didn't pray for her. In fact, he, he didn't even talk to her until after, the, after he'd saved her life. But he still saved her life. Now, when he saved her life... He didn't just leave her the way she was before. He expected something of her. Now, this wasn't something he wanted from her, but this was something he wanted for her. And her life was never the same. John 8, we'll start in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus, after going away by himself, probably to spend some time in prayer, heads to the temple. Now, before I get into the temple scene, one thing I want to just draw out and point, off, point to is that Jesus is often found in Scripture alone by himself praying with God. Like All the time, Jesus would find himself wandering away from the crowd so that he could get alone with God in prayer. There is no ministry to others. There's no love for others that's sustained outside of individual time with God. So one of the reasons we push you all the time to reading your Bible and praying daily is because we know, we know that there's no ministry that you have for others, there's no service you have for God that can be sustained by your own willpower. It is only the abiding presence of God in your life, meaning the time you've spent with God and drawing His Spirit into your life, it's only that that sustains any ability to love others. And Jesus was no exception. And so as the morning light breaks through the clouds, Jesus goes into the temple. He had a full day of teaching ahead of him. He was going to be there a long time. His desire was that God's children would know what God wanted for their lives. And so he was committed to teach all day, as long as it took for people to understand what it meant to follow God. Now today, though, was a little bit of a different day. Today, he was going to meet somebody who was about to die. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So the scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. 
The scribes were the people who like had the Old Testament that we know completely memorized. And they would spend all day, every day, writing down the law and interpreting it for people. And so if you had a question about the Old Testament, you would go to a scribe and say, hey, you remember the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I remember the Ten Commandments. What did Moses say about what we should do like with our parents? And the scribes would say, well, you should honor your father and mother. Like, oh, okay, good. I forget that one all the time. The scribe would say, okay, yeah, got it. You're squared away. So the scribes, like, they had this whole thing memorized. In fact, as, as children, they'd memorize it. And so, like, I'm not going to shame anybody in this room, including myself, by asking you to say five memory verses. But here's the reality. They wouldn't just memorize five verses. They wouldn't even just memorize five books of the Bible. They would memorize even, even more. They could say it front and back. They knew it very, very well. So those experts in the law and the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, find this woman caught in adultery, cheating, either cheating on her husband or sleeping with somebody who's already married. So we don't know. Like, we don't know if she was married. We don't know if this guy was married. All we know is they were together outside of marriage. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, a, a book that these rulers would have known, the Pharisees and the scribes, they would have known this book. They would have known what it said. It said that the end result of adultery is death. Like when you find people cheating on their spouses, you take them and you kill them. And so they grab this lady that was caught in adultery and they bring him to Jesus. They said, Jesus, what do we do? Do we kill her or do we let her live? And in the midst of this, this crowd that Jesus was teaching, the scribes and Pharisees, there's this lady standing. She's in the middle of a crowd, but she's all, she's all alone. No one is there defending her. She is completely alone. She's singled out. She's full of shame, and she's full of fear. And I think that's where many of us are when we get caught in sin. One of the loneliest places you can be is in a room full of religious people when you've been caught in sin. Because we feel like everyone is against us. We've broken the law. We've broken God's commands. The last place we want to be is around people who know how wrong it really is. Because when we're around religious people like that, Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've been guilty of this. When religious people see somebody that failed, a lot of times what they do is they single that person out and they pounce. They're ready to attack. They're ready to condemn and even destroy the person because of their failure. Here's the crazy part. For this woman who was caught and about to die, she wasn't even the focus she was, just, a, she was just, just somebody drug into this feud that the Pharisees had with Jesus. You see, they, they just pulled her in to make a point. They were willing to kill her simply to win an argument with Jesus. Verse 6, this they said to test him. The whole reason they brought this lady to Jesus was to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Religious leaders didn't even care that she did anything wrong. The religious leaders weren't trying to make anything right. 
They were simply trying to prove a point with Jesus. And so if, if, he, if Jesus said, yes, let's kill her, then he would be going against the Roman law they lived under right now because Jesus did not have the authority to kill people. And if you were to say, no, 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 let her, let her live, let her live, let her live, then he'd be going against the law of Moses, one of the people he was supposed to support. And so he was stuck in this situation where it didn't matter what he said, he would be wrong. There was no right answer that Jesus could give, and so he bends down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And so this crowd is, is all around Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes are there, and they're demanding an answer. Jesus, do we kill her? Jesus, do we kill her? And in classic Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer. Stoops down and starts writing on the ground. I think one of the biggest mysteries in the New Testament is what he actually wrote. There's a lot of people that will make some pretty strong guesses about what he wrote. Some people think that he wrote different passages of Scripture talking about the way you handle sin. Other people think that he actually listed out the individual sins of the accusers. The reality is we don't know what he wrote. All we know is that he stooped down and he wrote. So there's Jesus riding in the dirt, And there's the lady, the woman, caught. She's just standing there. I, mean, I just want you to think about the tension, the weight that she feels on her shoulders right now. The person who's going to give the verdict, the judge in this situation is Jesus. And instead of answering the accuser, saying yes or no, kill her or let her live, he's just sitting there writing. And she's standing here waiting to know, is she going to die? They wouldn't stop asking him. So he stood up. He said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, when they heard what Jesus said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And what was a roaring crowd, what was a group of people demanding blood, turned silent. They didn't even wait around to see what happened. They left. So the accusers leave. The scribes and Pharisees go their separate ways. And Jesus is left one-on-one -on -one with the person who's been accused. I want to pause here. Some of you have lived life enough to be in the shoes of somebody who's messed up terribly. Some of you, either publicly or privately, have done things that you know are terribly wrong. And so if you've ever felt the weight and the shame of massive moral fa failure? If you've ever sinned in such a way where you just sit there and say, there's no way I can recover from this. There's no way God can use me like he was going to use me. There's no way I can be loved like I should be loved. There's no way that I can move past this fully. It will always be this mark, this scar 
on my life, like it will always be with me. If, if you've ever been in that place where you say, I've, I've messed up so bad that it will always be a part of who I am, I want you to hear what Jesus says to this lady. He stood up and he said to her, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where, where are the people who made it a point to single you out? Where, where are the people who brought you here after pulling you from the act of adultery and said, we are going to watch her bleed to death? Where are those people? Who's here condemning you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus looks at her face to face, eye to eye, one on one, because the crowd is now gone. And what was once a roaring crowd demanding blood turns into one of the most surreal, emotional, quiet, calm, peaceful affirmations that Jesus could ever make for somebody. He looks at her. Somebody who had committed an incredibly terrible sin. And I will tell you, like, adultery is no minor sin. Breaking up marriages by breaking up the sexual intimacy within marriages is an incredible, incredibly awful, awful thing. She's not innocent. She's full of guilt. She has done terrible, terrible things. And Jesus looks at her. And he says, neither do I condemn you. I know you've done terrible things. I'm not saying you haven't. But I'm not going to stand here and condemn you. So go. And from now on, sin no more. And instead of giving a lecture, instead of ripping into her and, and telling her how awful she is, instead of chastising her or opening up his Bible and saying, well, here's what it says should happen to you, he offers her life. He saves her life. In her darkest moment when she was at her worst, it was Jesus who saved her. Now, this is the essence of Christianity. This is the foundation of what Christians believe, that while we were yet sinners, in our darkest, in our worst moments, Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't die for the good people. Jesus didn't die for the righteous people, the holy people. Jesus died for the worst of us so that we might have life. Instead of condemning, Jesus gives life. So in this example that Jesus provides, we can pull out a few things. The good life is a new life. One of the things we have to realize about this good life in Christ is the good life is a new life. It's not the old life. We cast away the old and we adopt a new life. The good life is a chance at new life. The consequences of sin are death. And when we choose the good life, when we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to receive life. And for this adulterous woman, it paid off immediately. 
But the reality of the Christian life, the good life, is when we choose to follow Jesus, we're not choosing to follow him for the temporary life on this earth alone. We're not sitting here saying following Jesus is going to buy us an additional two or three years to the few decades that we have on this earth. The good life that we're buying into is life eternal. And if there's any thinking that you have about Christianity that says, when I die, everything ends, you're not thinking about Christianity the same way Jesus thinks about Christianity. The whole reason the disciples were willing to go to the grave is because they knew on the other side of the grave was life eternal with Jesus, which is so much more significant than the temporary time that we have here. So, If you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, my encouragement to you is to consider it. Consider why somebody is worthy of being followed. Consider why Jesus, who made it a point to find people who were at their worst and sacrifice himself for them, consider Jesus, who would look at you right now if he knew your situation and you were right here face to face and say, I don't condemn you. Consider why that's a man worth following. Life's not the same when you follow Jesus. Next, the good life requires new direction in life. Now, when Jesus looks at this woman who's caught in adultery, who's caught in this terrible sin, in fact, it's like, probably my least favorite of all the sins. Like if I had to rank like all the different sins, I'd say, yeah, that one, that one could be the worst of all of them. Because not only does it like hurt individuals, it breaks up families for generations. Like if you really want to hurt somebody, like mess up a family. That'll really hurt people. But when he looked at her, he didn't condemn her. He forgave her. You see, Jesus can do that. Jesus has the ability to forgive sins. But after he forgave her, he didn't just leave her where she was. She was given a new direction. He says this, go, and from now on, sin no more. Stop doing what got you in the mess in the first place. Now, our response to sin, our response to sin, even the crazy, like, complex sins that are like sexual sins and things like that, our response to sin is not complex. Jesus' response wasn't complex. It's a very straightforward response to sin. So, I like math and flow charts and things like that. And so, have anybody ever seen like a decision tree? One of those things like, hey, if this is true, okay. So, I made one for tonight, okay? I hope it works. How do I deal with sin? Am I sinning? Yes. Stop. Am I sinning? No. Don't start. Okay. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) Can we review it? Yeah. Okay. I'll actually, okay. The way it works is you ask the question, and then you pick the answer that's true. So, am am I sinning right now? Yes. Okay, so what do you do if you're sinning? Stop. Okay. Am I sinning? No. Okay, so what do you do? Don't start. Okay, yeah, there it is. So, here's, 
Here's why I put that up there. Do you know how many times I've spoken with Christians, whether it's teenagers or adults, who are caught in the middle of sin, and they want to make the response so much more complex than that? Do you know how many reasons I've heard why they need to keep on sinning, whatever that sin is? Or why that's probably going to be a part of who they are for just that much longer? Or what difficulties are in place that makes it where they just can't stop? Like, Jesus looks at it, and he says it's pretty simple. To the, to the lady who had adopted a lifestyle that says, it is okay, I want you to think about her life. It is okay to wreck marriages. It's okay. Like, that's just a part of who I am. I see a guy, I wreck their marriage. Okay, like that's how she lived. And so, and so Jesus goes to her and says, okay, from now on, stop doing that. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I know things are rough. And so what I need you to do is I want you to find three accountability partners, okay? And if you can set up a weekly meeting every Thursday morning at 6 a.m., they're going to ask you, hey, Have you wrecked any marriages this week? And what we hope for you is that by the end of the 12 weeks that you've been meeting together, instead of wrecking eight marriages this year, you're down to wrecking four marriages a year. Wouldn't that be great? Like, what great improvement? That's not not what Jesus says. And hear, hear me on this. When we make complex the simplicity of following Jesus, we rob it. We rob ourselves of some of the joy of the new life in Christ. So in this story, here's what I wish. I wish I could put myself in the shoes of Jesus. I wish that when I saw somebody who was messing up royally, that I would look at them and say, I don't condemn you. Just stop messing up. Stop sinning. I don't find myself there. The reality is, I am much more like the scribes and Pharisees than I ever want to be. You know why? Because it's easier. In the church, in a religious setting like Collide, like this, it is easier to condemn somebody than it is to forgive them and help walk through the recovery from sin. It is much easier to say to that person, you don't belong here anymore, get out, than it is to say, hey, I know. I know that Christians aren't supposed to do that. You know Christians aren't supposed to do that. I know you're struggling in this area, and I know you said you want to stop, and I'm going to be here to walk through the mess with you. It's so much harder to walk through the mess of sin than it is to condemn somebody. But I want you to think about, what would this place be like? What would this place be like if people at their worst could come here and find Christ? 
we could experience the joy of seeing people who don't know Christ find Christ. That we would be a part of bringing the gospel to Williamson County. That we would see the joy of somebody who finds new life because we've shared the message of Jesus with them. It's incredibly easy to condemn, and I find myself doing it all too often. It's incredibly difficult to walk through sin with people. But if we are going to be the youth ministry, if we're going to be the Christians, if we're going to be the Jesus followers that we are being called to be, we will find people at their worst and offer them life just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you offered us life even in our shortcomings and failures. We know that you have a plan for our lives and for this ministry, for this church that brings you glory. And part of that means that we will have more and more people that know you and are coming to know you because of the testimony of these students. I do ask that you would put on our hearts the desire to share your word with others. And that when we have nights where we celebrate baptisms and salvations, that we dedicate hours to the party that is celebrating new life in Christ. Igniting us a fire to take your message to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.